Genesis chapter 9. This morning as we look at God's covenant that he makes with Noah after the flood. This is chapter 9 this morning, and, and we'll, we will read it as we go. Uh, but before we look into the text this morning, would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much again for your word. It is never to be taken for granted or to be taken lightly. You have revealed your will to us, and you have revealed the glory of your Son and the salvation that you have provided through your word. So, Father... Prepare our hearts today. Break up the fallow ground in our hearts. Remove all distractions, all previous guilt from this week. Father, the the cross has truly cleansed us from every sin. So, Father, clear our consciences and clear our minds as we hear from your word today. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are able to understand and to obey. Father, we want to hear your word and respond with great joy for your glory and for our joy. So, Father, speak. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Growing up, I was always amazed uh, when I would have the opportunity to visit different churches and speak. Uh, it, It never ceases to amaze me when church nurseries... Uh, used the story of Noah and the ark to paint on their nursery walls. Um, because it's always painted with a happy scene with the rainbow and all the animals are smiling. And, and, and I'm sure that they were smiling for good reason because they were on the boat. Uh, but that story was, was not really a happy time for the world. In fact, it was terrifying as everyone was wiped out, every living creature on the earth. And... <laughs> Prosperity theology would tell you that faith gets you a private jet, but for Noah, faith got him a floating zoo. Um, Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It's interesting when you read Hebrews 11 and the Hall of Faith, as all of these people are commended for their faith, their faith is never described in terms of what they believed. Their faith is always described in terms of what they did. It's always in terms of faith working itself out in action. Noah is saved by faith alone, just as you and I today are saved by faith and faith alone. And he was regarded righteous for his faith, but his faith worked itself out in building this ark. And when the flood came, as Mitch preached last week in in Genesis 8, God remembered Noah. Not that Noah came back to his mind as if he had forgotten Noah, but when God remembers things in the Bible, he acts on his promises. God preserves Noah, saves Noah and his family. He acted on his promise. Now, I want you to keep in mind, if you go, even go back to Genesis 8, I want you to put yourself on that boat with Noah and his family. Keep in mind that it not only rained for 40 days and for 40 nights, but when God remembered Noah, the earth had already been flooded for 150 days. Five months of being on a boat. This was not a joy ride, nor was it a luxurious pleasure cruise. Just think about this for a minute. 
You're on a five-month lock-in with Mrs. Noah. His three sons and their three wives. And a complete zoo of all of the world's animals, birds, and insects. Five months of shoveling stable muck and manure. Keeping the beavers in straitjackets so they don't tear the entire place down. Keeping lions out of the sheep stable. Battling seasickness. And then, on top of it all, trying to keep the peace between three daughters-in-law and their mother-in-law. You just know there had to have been a time when Noah was thinking, man, if we could just hit an iceberg or something and put us out of our misery, that would be great. And yet, God mercifully saves Noah. And saves his family. And brings them out from the ark. And as you read Genesis chapter 8, you can't help but notice that there's an echo of the six days of creation. God is decreating the the world through the flood and he is recreating it through Noah. Noah, in a way, becomes a second Adam. If you just think about it this way, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, God sends a wind over the earth to to blow the water away, just as in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovered above the waters. In Genesis 8 verse 2, the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven had been closed, reminding us of how God in creation separated the waters and the expanse of the waters. In chapter 8 verse 5, the waters continued to recede until Noah could see the tops of the mountains. Just as on the third day of creation, God allowed dry ground to appear. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 6, Noah sends out a raven to look for dry land, just as God in Genesis 1 had sent out birds to fly above the earth. And in chapter 8, verse 17, every living creature was brought out from the ark, just as on day 6 when God made all creatures that moved along the ground. There is intentional repetition and a reminder that God is making all things new again. Now I want you to imagine that you just stepped out of that ark. You have been on that boat for over a year. Terrified of the storm. And everyone that you've ever known besides your immediate family is dead. Not only that, but every animal that ever lived is dead. I want you to just step off that boat for a minute and smell it. I want you to imagine what you might be thinking... After God has just wiped out every living creature. Would you be afraid that God might do it again? You might even be tempted to think that God considers life to be cheap. Or it's no big deal for him just to wipe out humanity. And yet Noah faithfully responds in worship. Sacrifice. Look at chapter 8 verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Noah's sacrifice here acts as a propitious, wrath-satisfying, sin-cleansing sacrifice that was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And I want you to, don't miss this, it is in the context of worship through an atoning sacrifice that God would make the first covenant in human history. Now a covenant is a, is a, is a 
agreement made between two different parties. It's made all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The covenant that God would make through Noah declared that God held all life to be sacred. And that humankind, too, must preserve life in the earth. And so from this point on in human history, the God of Israel would be known as a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. This is being written to a group of Israelites who have come out of Egypt into the promised land where God has made a covenant, not only with Abraham to bless the nations, but also a covenant at Sinai that God would be their God. And yet the first covenant he makes is with Noah. Now as we look at Genesis chapter 9, this this passage is really broken down into two main sections. It has to do with man's responsibility living in this new world, and God's promise in His covenant. So let's look at these two sections. Verses 1 to 7, the first thing that we see in this text, the first main point, is that people have the responsibility to produce and protect life on the earth. In other words, God considers life to be sacred. God considers life to be precious. And therefore, we as His image bearers must seek to preserve life. So let's read this together. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens. Upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And now in verse 7, God bookends the text by repeating what he said in verse 1. Verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So the first thing that we see in verse 1 and in verse 7 is that God commissions humanity to produce life. Once again, we see a parallel with the Garden of Eden, right? Noah is told to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. Remember, those are the same words that he told Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. And if you remember back in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve permission to eat what? All vegetation. You can eat of any fruit of any tree in the garden except for one, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In a similar way, God is going to give Noah the ability to eat whatever he wants. Except now, not only can he eat vegetation, but now he says you can eat of all from the animal kingdom. You can eat anything that moves except you cannot eat the blood. And so there's, there's this change that's been made after the flood. While Adam enjoyed relationships with animals, 
God says that animals will now fear humanity as they are hunted and used for food. Praise God, meat was now to be a normal part of the human diet. This is the part where you say, amen, right? Good. So get out of here with your veggie burgers, right? You eat meat. You are welcome to it. And so he, he in verse 1 and in verse 7, this section is set apart as, as being reminded to produce life, to be fruitful and multiply. This is a clear teaching from God himself that children are a blessing from the Lord. Those same verbs of being fruitful and multiplying are used to describe the Israelites in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. About how the Israelites flourished in the land of Egypt and they increased in number. Moses is emphasizing to Israel that God is blessing them for their obedience to be fruitful and to multiply. So this is the first command. God tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and to produce life. But the second thing that he tells them is to protect life, to preserve it. In verses 2 through 4, man was now free to eat flesh as long as it didn't have life in it. Now, what is the life of an animal? The blood. The blood represents the life. This is pretty simple. If you offer a sacrifice, if you drain the blood out of a living being, it dies. You cannot live without blood. And he tells them humans are not to devour animals the way that animals devour one another. While the blood is still pulsating in the flesh. And one of the reasons for this is to have respect for life. And beyond that, respect for the giver of life. God is the one who gives life. And so in order to respect life, you do not eat the blood. You don't eat the life of the animal. But there's another reason. A more important reason that God is telling Noah not to eat the blood. He's setting a standard for what he's going to teach them later in the book of Leviticus. God often uses common items in creation to teach. And blood was going to carry a very special significance for Israel's system of worship and sacrifice. You don't have to turn here. But I'm going to read this for you from Leviticus chapter 17. If you want to write that down, you can read it later. Listen to this specific teaching about the nature of blood. Leviticus 17 verse 10. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So this is serious. If you eat blood, you are cut off from the people of God. But he goes first. Here's why. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it, I have given you the blood for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. So what's the real reason here? When, an, when a priest would sacrifice an animal and sprinkle the blood on the altar, the blood was representative of the life of that animal. And when the worshiper would come to the 
the temple to offer sacrifice, that blood being offered was symbolic that the animal's life was taking the place of the worshiper. Blood was for atonement, to appease wrath, to pay for sin. This is why Hebrews chapter 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In other words, you cannot be forgiven of sin unless another life takes your place. The wages of sin is death. And if there is no death, a.k.a. The shedding of blood, then there is no forgiveness of sins. So when that animal's blood was sprinkled on the altar, that blood was representative of the animal's life in the place of the worshiper. Now if you hadn't made the connection yet, let me help you. This is why we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the Blood of Jesus. It's not that we believe there's something magical in the red blood cells of Christ that somehow remove our guilt. It is about the demands of God's justice being satisfied in the substitutionary death of the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. And the scripture speaks clearly to this all throughout the New Testament. Romans 5 verse 8. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his Blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 2 verse 13. Now you in Christ Jesus who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 19. Therefore brothers we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the Blood of Jesus. First Peter 1 verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. But you have been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The blood of Christ is symbolic of His life in my place. When His blood was shed, it was a representation, not only of His death, also of His life. While my life and your life only deserve wrath, judgment, condemnation, and hell, His blood was shed in our place, representing His perfection, His obedience, His righteousness, His holiness, His death, and His resurrection for me in my place, and God's wrath is satisfied. And so we can all say this morning that there is power... Power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But I had an epiphany this week. The Israelites, all these years, thousands of years, had been told not to eat the blood. Do not eat the blood. You can eat the flesh, but do not eat the blood. And my mind this week went to John chapter 6, where Jesus feeds 5,000 people and has a crowd of people following Him. And then in John chapter 6... 53, Jesus says these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. 
He says later in verse 56, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. No wonder that was so offensive to the Jews, right? Their whole life they had been taught, you don't eat the blood. And now this guy's coming along saying, I am the final sacrifice for sin, and you must not only eat my flesh, but also drink my blood. Symbolically saying, you must believe in me as the final atoning sacrifice for your sins. No wonder Peter says to him, Lord, this is a hard teaching. Who can receive this? And yet Jesus says that if you eat his flesh and drink his blood, he says, that person not only abides in me, but I abide in him. In some mysterious way, Jesus is saying that by believing in Christ, you are simultaneously abiding in Him the way that you would abide in an ark to save you from a flood. And by ingesting Him into your life through faith, you are also have Him in you. Where He abides in us like a sacrifice being eaten to cleanse us from sin. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is blood that takes away sin. And yet, humanity is told to respect the life. But then he goes further in verses 5 through 6. God forbids the violation of life. You won't find a more pro-life chapter in the Bible than this. That God is, is putting forward the preciousness of life and the violation if you take life. In verse 4, God tells them to respect animal life by not eating the blood. But there is also a prohibition about violating human life. Look at verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man. In other words, if you read the Old Testament law, uh, if an animal were to kill a human being, that animal would be put to death. But now he also says that he will require it from man. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. What we learn here is that humans do not have unlimited power over life just because God does. This should put a restraint on our culture for the way that it treats life so flippantly. God's warning in this section teaches people to safeguard life. Both in how they eat meat and how they preserve human life in the earth. And we don't have time to get into all the implications of what that means for us. And this is not even meant to be a political statement. That Christians should be uh, protecting and preserving life in all stages. That includes the unborn. But not just the unborn. We cannot just be known for people who, who protect the unborn. But when they are born, we should be fighting for their life. This is what Restoration Rome's all about. This is why we are asking to raise money so that we can present a place that's not only uh, for life before children are born, but also pro-life when they're born so that they have a flourishing in, hum in human life. There's flourishing. There's a place for them that's safe. There's a place for them so they can be restored back to their family. We want life in all forms, not just for the young, but also the elderly. We preserve and protect life. And the way God does this is He institutes law. 
Now, law can never save, but law was necessary for the stability of life in this new order of things. And God says that I will require the blood of man from man. If you don't have law and if you don't have something to restrain the sinfulness and wickedness of man, then it will go unchecked and it will get just as bad as it was before and God might have to flood the earth again. And so this enforcement of law was never to be done by individuals. This isn't just, hey, if, if, some, if I see somebody doing something wrong, I have personal, i got to go and, and fix it. That's not how it works. God institutes this to be done by society and governments. This is why Romans chapter 13 teaches that government is something that's instituted by God for one of the main purposes of holding back and restraining evil. This is what it means to preserve and to protect So the first thing we've seen is that that there's a responsibility for humanity to preserve, to protect, to produce life. And if you do that, there is great blessing. There's blessing in, in, in falling in line with these covenant promises of God. And now the second section, verses 8 to 17, tells us what God promises to do. And that is that God promises to preserve His creation. In verses 8 to 11, God promises to preserve life. Let's read this together. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I'll just make three quick points here about this flood about the, or the nature of this covenant about the flood. This covenant that God makes with humanity it's universal, it's unilateral, and it's unconditional. Let me explain those things. If you want to write those down, this is what it means. His covenant is universal, meaning that every human being and every living creature, good or evil, is included in this. It's universal. It applies to everyone for all time, past, present, and future. This is why he gives a universal sign of the rainbow to indicate To indicate this applies to everyone. This is a covenant I'm making for everyone. Whether you're good or bad. I will never flood the earth again and destroy it. It's universal. The second nature of this covenant is that it's unilateral. God, It's a one-way covenant. God alone is the sole initiator. Twice he calls it my covenant. In other words, it doesn't require any action. Mankind, not even an acknowledgement. And as Mitch said in the communion message, it is not even by our obedience that God gives us this common grace. It is purely out of His mercy and it does not depend on our obedience. It's unilateral and it's unconditional. There will never again be another cosmic destruction by water, no matter what we earthlings do. It is a covenant made by God's self-motivated promise of unconditional mercy and common grace to humanity. I will never judge the earth again by the flood. Now here's what that does not mean. Just because it's unconditional and unilateral and universal, that does not mean that there aren't expectations for humanity. This is the way any covenant works with God. By falling in line with God's laws and God's expectation, God would provide blessing for anyone who lived within the boundaries of this covenant. 
humankind is responsible to preserve life because we are regularly reminded of this precious promise to God by God that life is precious to Him. And the final thing that God does here is He gives a sign of the covenant as a promise of His pledge. And this is something God does with all covenants. He provides a sign. Look at verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. This is the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. As with most covenants, God gives a sign that would remind people that he would keep his promise. Did you know that the word for bow here is not just a rainbow, but it's also the word used for the battle bow. A warrior's bow, as as in a bow and arrow. Indicating that God is hanging up his war bow in the sky to be a sign of peace between him and humanity. In other words, the war... Is over. I can't say it better than the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. So if you do not have this for your children, you need to get this. But I thought it'd be better to read this for you. One of my favorite stories in this book is is the story of Noah and the ark. And I'm not going to read the whole story, just the last page. She talks about this war bow. It says, at last, the boat landed quite suddenly on top of a mountain. As soon as it was safe, God said, out you come. And so they did. Everyone skipping and dancing onto dry land. The first thing Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, just as he had promised. And the first thing God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again. But God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan. A better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more. But not on his people or his world. No. God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. You see, God's covenant turns judgment into grace. It is God's covenant that can turn your storm into an unclouded day. And there's some of you that need to hear what I'm about to read. One of the commentators wrote this. I think we need to hear this. When Noah saw this sign, they accepted it as a sign that God has no pleasure in destruction. That He does not give way to moods. That if weeping may endure for a night, joy is sure to follow. If anyone is under a cloud, leading a joyless, heartless life, 
If anyone has much apparent reason to suppose that God has given him up to catastrophe, there is some satisfaction in seeing this natural emblem and recognizing that without the cloud breaking into heavy sweeping rains, there cannot be the bow. And that no cloud of God's sending is permanent, but will one day give place to unclouded joy. This is why we sang earlier that I trace the rainbow through the rain and realize that the promise is not in vain. Some of you are going through a storm right now and you are holding on with everything you have. You have obeyed God. You have gotten into the boat. You have gotten into Christ. But think that just because you get on the boat that it's not going to be rocky at times. And there's not going to be storms. And there may be times of uncertainty. But that storm in your life is necessary for you to appreciate the rainbow and to appreciate the day when there will be unclouded joy. When you see a rainbow in the clouds, and there's been a lot of opportunity for that this week with all the rain that we've had, always take the opportunity to remind yourself and your children that God's wrath will one day give way to peace. Today you and I have a new and better covenant A covenant that promises the forgiveness of sins and salvation from God's wrath for all those who come into a better ark. Christ himself. The one who truly bore the wrath of God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let me tell you about this new covenant. This new covenant has a special meal. A meal that we just shared together. Where we gather together to eat And to drink in remembrance of the one whose blood has truly cleansed us from all sin. But this covenant not only has a special meal. It has a special sign. Where we are baptized into this new family. Baptized into this covenant. Baptized into Jesus name. The name of the one who is truly greater than Noah. Who truly saves his people from the waters of death. By his faithfulness and his obedience and his atoning sacrifice. Baptism itself is a picture that the flood will not hurt you. That you have gone down into the waters of death. And you have been raised to walk in a newness of life. Untouched by the wrath of of God walking out free there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains rest this morning in the gospel church it is for you there is no wrath because Christ has drank every bitter drop you are free this morning let's pray father Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the reminder that you have sent a savior. One who saved us from another with another piece of wood, not to build a boat, but to build a cross and to die on that cross and to shed his blood in our place. Father, for people coming in here today with guilt and remorse from past sins, would you cleanse their conscience? And give them the assurance that you have forgiven them. Father, let us live in this reality. That in Christ we are forgiven. That there is no wrath stored up for us. And that we have passed from death into life. Father, as we seek to be your ambassadors on this, on this world. Let us be ambassadors that seek to preserve and to protect life. As you deem life to be precious. 
Father, help us to be fruitful and to multiply. Not just with children, but to be fruitful and multiply with disciples. Multiplying ourselves so that the knowledge of God will fill the earth. Would you do that, Lord? Father, as we worship now, let us worship knowing that we have traced the rainbow through the rain and that your promise is not in vain. That all our sin has been washed away and in Christ we are clean. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.